how does it feel to you going between these worlds, particularly like on stage? The audience for Sarah is pretty different than the audience for Tchaikovsky. Do you feel different on stage? Is, is it more freeing on stage for some of these? So I feel like there is nothing that can compare to the feeling that you get when you're performing for arenas of like 20 to 40,000 people. The energy, the, you feel like you're like on some fancy drug or something. <laughs> like, I don't know what <laughs> drug that is, but like, it's so euphoric. It's so incredible. That energy that you feel from the audience and that just like is like a vault of energy within you immediately just feeling that excitement and just everything from the audience is is unbelievable and i think that is something unique of course to the popular music world because we don't get to experience that as classical musicians Welcome everybody to the Baking, Baking Notes. Notes Podcast. 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 We back again. With We're still here, baby. Banger. Another <laughs> banger and another one. Another so, one. Speaking of really famous musicians, our next guest has performed with tons of them. Melody Giron is a cellist from Boston. Did New England Conservatory Preparatory School since she was three years old, got her master's at Peabody. And she's performed with Cerberellis on her Amidst the Chaos tour, while also performing along the si- alongside the likes of Stevie Wonder, Shawn Mendes, Eminem, 50 Cent, Ed Sheeran, Doja Cat, Keisha Cole, her, Emily King, and just dozens of others. She's also been on you know, NBC's America's Got Talent, season 10, uh, Mozart in the Jungle, She's even performed on films Boy Erased and Gemini Man. She is a baller. She's everywhere. And I definitely have seen her perform because she also, while doing all these insane pop gigs and these like super crazy, super popular things, does like contemporary music, which is at, you know, massive audiences of 50 composers. <laughs> <You know? laughs> she's, she's been on some of the big foundational pieces. And you got Ted Hearn, Julia Wolf, And not just that, she's just found a way to balance like a life of crowds of 40,000, the Hollywood balls, playing with the big names, all the way to still teaching beginning cellists, little three-year-olds, how to put the instrument in the case. She's done it all. She's been working and grinding away. And it's so inspirational to see someone uh, who can both find balance, but still really dead set on doing everything. Exactly. So before we jump into this uh, wonderful episode that you're not going to want to miss, just remember to subscribe. You know, that's the way to support us. Leave us a review. That's a form of currency in the Faking Notes uh, podcast (laughs) realm because, uh, you know, we'll read out your your reviews as you leave them. Speaking of currency, we got a Patreon. Come out and support us. Uh, it's You can directly support us through Patreon. Also, we love to hear from you in between the episodes. And if you want to do that, join our Discord. All these links are in the episode description. Come hang out. Come enjoy the chats. Come for us. Stay for the memes. But without further ado, our next guest, Melody Hero. Melody. 
Melody I've never I've never flubbed the beginning or anybody's name. That was the first time, ladies and gentlemen. This stays in. This stays it. Melody Hiron. That's welcome. That was beautiful. There you go. Thank you. Hablo un poquito espanol. Un poquito. Welcome to the Faking Nose Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I'm excited to introduce you to my co-host and best friend, Trevor Bumgarner. Uh, it's first time you guys have met, correct? Correct. Yes. Nice to meet you. Well, nice to I'd, meet you I'd, too. I'd, Melody, one of my favorite things about you is how you always have this kind, open heart when you relate to people at any gig, when you're dealing with students. I remember our first uh, interaction was at OMP by Jessica Grand. We were teaching at that summer festival together back in like mm-hmm. 2015, 2016. Yeah, a long time ago. Long time ago. And since then, it, your career has blossomed beautifully. I just wanted to, for the Thinking Fam, introduce you and ask you, since the pandemic, what are some lessons that you've kind of, or, or skills you've kind of gained during this trying time in, in our industry? Uh, well, first of all, thank you. That's so kind of you to say. <laughs> I reached out to you a little bit about building my own home studio. I you know, realized that gigs outside of my home weren't happening. So I had to figure out how to make money at home and continue to produce at home. And so I downloaded Logic and built my own sound panels, some of which are right behind me over there. Oh, let's go. (laughs) Yeah. So like I got all the materials, cut up all the wood, like the professional materials and put it all together. And now I have um, sound panels, which is awesome. And I got a nice mic. And so basically I I built my own little home studio and uh, learned a little bit how to edit and process recordings and do all that kind of stuff. Um, still learning a lot because I feel like it's an incredibly like in-depth it's a deep rabbit. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's there's a lot. I, I I have like my written notes and I follow like step one. Click this. You know, <laughs> every time I feel like I, you know, it's like anything. If you don't re- do it like repeatedly, it doesn't necessarily stick. And for us as classical yeah. musicians, I feel like it's such a new skill to have to produce on our own. Um, Because previous to this, I would always go to a professional recording studio. So um, that's one sort of really important skill that I dove into. And aside from that, in the pandemic, like I was doing projects just for fun, really, with colleagues that, you know, were elsewhere, other states or whatnot. And we would just record pieces together and then splice them together, which was also another sort of like video editing skill that is good to know and and have in your pocket so just some just like fun projects something to keep the music alive you know it's hard learning how to do all of this audio stuff like i'm so far in and i'm still listening back i'm like what what's wrong (laughs) (laughs) what happened (laughs) because all all the advice is like oh here's 10 tips on how to do this and then it doesn't either doesn't apply to what you're doing or they're like yeah, just listen for the boxiness or like remove the mud. And I'm like, what are those? Like, what am I what's listening mud? for? <laughs> what's, what's box? Like, <laughs> it's so hard. Yeah. 
No, and seriously, I was talking um, to a colleague last weekend. We did a gig together and we were talking about buying mics. And I remember when I first bought my um, AKG mic, I like all drew up and I was like, okay, I got my mic. It was like super expensive. Now, how do I plug it in? Where do I plug it in? Like now what? Because the mic didn't actually even, they don't, all this gear doesn't come with like the cords you need. And that was a whole thing where I was like, suddenly like YouTube, like what cords do I need? Like, what do I need in order to plug in my focus? Right. All these sort of like, you know, that seemed like simple things. I just didn't have any knowledge of. And no one, no one teaches you about these things in conservatory. And now I feel like it's an incredibly valuable skill that conservatories should should really implement a class a mandatory class for all students um to learn these things because i you know had no clue <laughs> it might be one of the most valuable classes <clears throat> and yeah. i remember because i do some recording things uh back when we were at, at juilliard and whenever i'd have someone come to i'm gonna hey i need a recording of my piece will you come in here and you know meet me at room like 326 or whatever and mm-hmm. then They'd be like, what room is that? And they'd come in and they'd find it and they'd open the little door. And then suddenly there's this whole recording studio, like full blown that everyone has access to, that there are all these classes, but like they'd never heard of it. They could have easily had been there for four, two years, four years, 12 years, and had Mm -hmm. never bumped into that opportunity. And like what happens there might be some of the most useful things down the road when you're starting to do those videos, when you're starting to like record yourself, work in your album, or even just have better sound for teaching online. It's, yeah. it's wild how we kind of gloss over what is such a por- an important practical skill. Another thing about that is the location of that studio. It's on the floor where most of the, it's mostly dance and, and, and theater, right? So it's not even on the floors that musicians spend the most time on. So of course they're not going to really there's no have sign. a collision with yeah. it. There's, it no, looks- there's a little sign that says recording studio. Yeah, <laughs> on like the wall a, it's it's kind of wild and yeah. and so un, until you know you're tipped off that wait a minute i can i could get access to this and like learn about this stuff later on well you'd have no idea and so well one of the things i like though and like what you did like in the story you described is that this community is <laughs> is great about asking stuff i can't think of one audio recorded related decision that i like didn't ask yeah, <laughs> like someone who like they're like, hey, what bikes, what cables? D- should I spend my money on an interface or should I spend it on this? And they all know. So at least that's one positive thing about that specific community. Moving from like you know just like learning about recording and, and everything before the Panny D, you know you were a vibrant, um, and even still you are vibrant. You're a vibrant player. Uh, we all had a lot of really interesting work going on. I think as things continue to open up as they are with vaccines and with, you know, just the general virus going through our population, we're going to open up at some point for real, for real concerts are coming back. It's, it's inevitable moving into that space. There are a ton of kids who have graduated many, a lot of them listen to this podcast and trying to figure out what are some things that they need to do when they get that first call for the gig. How do you, balance a freelance uh, career. I, any, do you have some like tips and tricks on like your best practices on, you know, building your name 
And then also making sure you're maintaining your name and your integrity as you move forward in your career. For your first question, like getting Mm -hmm. that first call, I remember when I moved here, I really like didn't, I didn't go to school here. I went to NEC and I went to Peabody for my master's. So when I moved here, I didn't feel like I was necessarily like part of like one of the conservatory groups of, you know, classical musicians. And so it was kind of scary. And I remember I had one colleague that I had met at Britain Pierce Young Artist Program, and she had been here for one year and she went to school here for her master's interest. She was like, let me like introduce you to some people. And I felt so grateful, you know, to just network. And so I think like getting that first call really has so much to do with networking and staying in touch with people. And when you get that first call, I think it's really important to, of course, be prepared. And um, aside from being prepared with your, what you know, whatever the repertoire is, is to just simple things such as showing up on time. I, I even now, like seven and a half, eight years later in New York City, there are still some colleagues that are known for being tardy mm-hmm. and they're known for that yeah you know they're known for that and so i know like that's something that's really important is to be timely and to show like your respect for the work in that way and so like you know sort of like these simple things that i think you can't be taught at a conservatory we all had this great education at these great conservatories and we play but can you show up on time and prepared and be polite and stay in your lane at the gigs? Because I think one other really important thing that I learned was that in freelancing, especially everybody sort of has a very kind of like specific role once you're at the gig and learning to not overstep what your role is at a specific gig. If there's a contractor who's playing or if there's a, MD or, you know, various people that control that specific gig, like to sort of like stay in your lane and be respectful of what your role is. Because yeah, it's at the end of the day, you know, we're all working together, but um, it's really important to respect everybody's role, really, I think. Could you maybe give us some examples of like types of roles like okay this is the leader this is the contractor this person don't talk to the celebrity this person talks to them like what are some roles exactly so this type of thing so i think going back to when i was actually in my master's program at peabody i was called to sub with the south florida symphony so i remember i went down there and i was in the cello section of course and um i don't know what chair i sat but i was in principal And I remember like some topic came up, we were rehearsing some section where I like sort of like raised my hand and was like, can we like, you know, do this? Can we go over this section? And my colleague was one of the principals and she said like, never do that again. Like, you know, it's just not your place as a section cellist to ever, you know, speak or ask something that like the principal cellist in the rehearsal should be the only one to, you know, bring up this topic or this discussion to the conductor, like in a section, you know, that role is left to the principals or the concertmaster or whatnot. And so like that was, um, you know, of course, something that I I think I had already learned growing up doing youth orchestra, but 
in a professional setting, it was like, it was something that I was immediately was, you know, just was like, okay, I can never do that again. You know, that was just like, not mm-hmm. professional. You shouldn't overstep that boundary of where you're, you know, where you're seated in that, in a classical orchestral setting, for instance. But then doing all the pop work that I do, um, one of my first gigs in New York City was to play with Stevie Wonder at Madison mm-hmm. Square Garden. That was literally like maybe my second gig. Let's Straight go. out the gate. Not City. bad. So, <laughs> what a yeah. gig. Yeah. And I remember just feeling obviously elated to have been called for this gig. Um, and, you know, not necessarily knowing oh. um, what the the do's and don'ts are in these settings. And I had to really quickly learn, like, yeah, you don't you don't show up to a gig where you're playing with a pop artist or a celebrity, somebody who's, you know, famous and whatnot and act like a fangirl or a fanboy, you know, or like a, you can't, you, you got to go there and act professionally and um, stay cool. Yeah. Stay cool. And you quickly realize, I think after doing a lot of like, I've done a lot of pop artists and hip hop artists work that they're just people too anyway. And they're just like mm-hmm. another musician in the room, but you don't know that you're there to provide your service as a musician and to do your job well. You know, just be respectful of that space that you're in. I love the way you broke it down for each of the different realms because it's very true. Like the the classical world and the pop world do have very big differences in the chain of command. Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of like thinking about it like the military, like uh, a corporal is never going to tell a lieutenant, a lieutenant what to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that's helpful. Maybe in, in the pop world, could you like illustrate the role of like a music director or a contractor and kind of give context as to where they are in, in the sort of chain of command? Yeah, so I think in the chain of command, the MD in the pop world will always be sort of like the top mm-hmm. of the top for the musicians mm-hmm. and, you know, guiding the musicians wise. Um, below the MD, which is the music director, of course, um, who, you know, puts together all of the music for what whatever project that is, is I would say the contractor. And so, and a lot of the times the contractor is also playing the gig. And when that's the case, it's really important to stay in your lane as like, so you're not going to directly speak to the MD, the person who's going to speak to the MD about any changes that need to happen in the score, your part or whatever with the music or even logistically, like, where's our, you know, our call room, what's our call time, any of these things are 100% left to the contractor to arrange and discuss with the MD. And it would just sort of be sort of like stepping out of your lane to step in and like do this kind of conversing with an MD that the contractor is really in charge of. And, and I think also just like sometimes people will show up at these gigs and want to take advantage of the fact that there are, important people in the industry there and MDs and whatever, whatnot to network, which, which it's great to network. But I think um, you don't ever want to like, what's the right word, like sort of snag or steal someone else's contracting work. 
because you want to be mm. called by your colleagues and you want to respect that this is their gig. This is their connection. And mm -hmm. if you do your job well, that contractor is going to call you again for the next gig. And so you don't want to ever sort of like step in and take their contracting work from them. I think that's something also like I, that's really important to just be respectful of that role. Like very similar in the composition world, less so in like classical composition because no one's calling anyways, but, <laughs> but in like film, the film world yeah. is like, there's, cl there's clear hierarchies and just some people yeah. can be oblivious to them. Of course there's yeah. problems. Of course it leads to gatekeeping, but you have this head composer and then the film comes up, they need an hour of music, it's an orchestra, they already fired the last composer, there's so much writing on it, and so they need a team. So they go out, they assemble a team, there's additional composers, there's little ghost writers, there's the intern, there's the studio manager, and people are all contributing into this. And so inevitably, that young little intern it's just like, hey, can I like do this and get writing credits? And then all of the assistants, the people have been there for five years, the ghostwriter, everyone just like looks back and are like, did you, did you just ask that question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're like, you, you just got here, you know? And so there's problems with it, but also it's just something to be aware of because you work through, you're going to get that experience. You're going to be around there and you're going to get your opportunity, but yeah. Now all you've done is just angered the people who maybe hired you, who recommended you in there because yeah. of this potential like leapfrogging or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. The last parallel I would try to draw this to is like maybe the contractor is like the section leader. Yeah, exactly. The, the MD is like the conductor. Yes. Um, just to kind of like That's a that great way around. to put it. Yeah, mm -hmm. totally. Mm -hmm. you, you talk about working with Stevie Wonder. And, and dealing with that and, and also you're talking about the South Florida uh, symphony and like learning the importance of understanding and respecting the hierarchy. I'm curious about like, what is it like now? Uh, because there's like a really, I really want to talk about this. I want to brag about you. You went on tour with Sarah Bareilles. Yes. And you got to tour. Was it the whole country? Was it just a countrywide tour? Can you describe? Yeah, you U.S. tour. Yeah, for, um, it was like two and a half months, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I got to see the finale, not the finale, but like your performance at Hollywood Bowl. Yes. Uh, and uh, Maria M. was also there. Mm -hmm. and it, it was so f phenomenal seeing uh, that sort of come together. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to be on tour and yeah. like the preparation and, and just getting through the day by day. Totally. Well, first of all, Sarah just happens to be one of the loveliest, most generous, kind humans I've ever met on top of being a phenomenal musician. So it was really amazing to have my sort of like first real tour with such an artist such as herself. So that was really awesome. Um, I the day-to-day -day life on tour was um it can be very tiring you know because you're you're traveling by night on or we were on this particular tour traveling by night on the tour bus so you're sleeping on the tour bus and um arriving to the next venue in the morning and then when you arrive at the venue the whole crew that's with you like the tech crew the stage crew 
management, everybody gets to the arena first. This was an arena tour and sets up the whole arena for the band, us, the artists to come in and have our spaces in the arena. And so you're, you're kind of like, you get to the arena and then you're waiting until 9 p.m. every day to perform. So, you know, it can be like, it can feel a little bit isolating because you're just in this big space all day. Like the hurry up and wait is real on tour, you know? Like you get there and you're just like, okay, I can't wait to get on stage at 9.30 or whatever that is, you know? Like all this time and I initially thought like, oh, well, just practice all day. Great. Like I have these orchestra auditions coming up. I'll practice. But it doesn't actually end up being all that easy, of course, to practice when you're at a different arena every day and you don't want to overwhelm management with like finding you your own room to practice in the locker rooms or in the arenas. And like, you know, you um, so like the day to day life of touring can be so fun, of course, because you get to perform every night, which is just an immense gift to us as musicians. Um, that's, of course, the highlight of it all. Um, but the like during the day, it's a lot of just hanging out and waiting for the time to come for performance. Sometimes if we our arena was uh, close to like a city center where, of course, um, we're free to go explore the city and grab lunch or whatever. And that's that's super cool about touring because you got to know a little a city. It's wonderful. It's I loved being on tour and. I think this particular tour was amazing because Sarah really wanted us all to feel like we're a group of musicians on tour. It's not the Sarah Bareilles tour, but we're a whole band. She had us all bow together at the end of every concert and and introduced us all several times during every concert and just sort of just made us feel like really appreciated and really like, this is your concert. It's not like just my concert. This is all of us. And so that was like a a really special, uh, just really special thing about her and the way that she wanted her tour to feel for us and for her. It was, I can't say anything that was not like positive about that experience because she really just fostered such an amazing environment for all of us. I loved following it through Maria M's Instagram. Yeah. (laughs) Or going through, like it's so... I was like, wow, that's an experience and like yeah. love and family. And I remember she had posted some story that Sarah would tell, you know, about the journey it took for her to get to this tour and everything that led up to it. And mm-hmm. it seems super heartwarming. I was already, I wasn't available to go to the concert in LA, but I wish I had seen it because it, it seems special. Yeah. And I think one other thing that was exceptional about this tour was that we literally had zero backing track or no track like at all. I, I don't know what the official wow. one is, but you guys probably yeah. know more than me. I'm so bad at these things. But um, like l- literally everything that you heard in the audience was live every night live. coming out mm-hmm. from our mics. So it really felt like a chamber music experience, which is I think what Sarah was and the MD, our MD was wonderful, um, what they were going for. Which, which was really awesome because as classical musicians, of course, you know, sometimes we get hired to do pop gigs or hip hop gigs and, you know, <coughs> whatnot, popular music. And um, 
a lot of the time there's going to be a backing track or some kind of track playing. And um, here it was a really a collaboration of everyone on the stage every night having to listen and really collaborate as chamber musicians to create, you know, what we were able to create, which was just awesome. It was really like, it felt really rewarding to be able to do that on a pop tour. That's wonderful. I also want to highlight that this is not normal. (laughs) (laughs) That's why it's like exceptional because yeah, it's not. (laughs) <laughs> One and, and what was so reflective of that was how in good spirits you and Maria were when we were hanging out, mm-hmm. like at the end of the tour, you can tell the quality of the tour by how the musicians feel at the end of the tour, right? If they yeah, look run yeah. down ragged, yeah. um, it, there's a, re- there's a real difference. And I think that she got the most out of you mm-hmm. because she created an environment where you had stake in the performance. It's not like you're just like some sort of like prop. Yeah. To to just like for the audience, just to mm-hmm. kind of look good. Yeah. You're actually engaging. And I think the, the product is much better for it. So. Yeah, definitely. I hope more MDs that are listening, pr- like try to go down this route and take a, take a leaf from her book because um, it may seem infant, infinitesimally like like the difference right but it's real and i think the audience picked it up myself as an audience member picked it up so yeah definitely i think it makes a huge difference i i really do hope like more pop tours start you know follow suit with with this kind of like chamber music experience now, oh yeah, who would have thought like chamber music and arenas, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> that's my that's my personal dream. Totally. P- piggybacking off Sarah Bareilles, there was a wonderful musician of whom I'm a huge fan who was opening up for your show, mm-hmm. um, Emily King. Yeah. And I want to hear a little bit more about like how your relationship with her developed because. Did you go on tour with Emily, or did you guys just start hanging out and you just like? became friends. Can you talk a little bit more about how that relationship blossomed? Sure. Um, so I met Emily on Sarah's tour cause she was Sarah's opener. Um, and because the opener has completely like separate management and everything, they don't necessarily like she didn't, her group didn't travel with us per se, like with on our tour buses or what, you know, they had their own route and, uh, management. So we saw them every day at the arena once, you know, in the evening, once we all got there, but we didn't actually get to see them that much during the day. But I, she's such a wonderful person. I loved her energy and just her joy and happiness. She's really like an awesome person to be around. And we just clicked on tour. And even though we didn't get to spend necessarily like extended amounts of time like you do with your other bandmates because you're on the tour bus all the time and just going everywhere together but we really enjoyed each other's company and so we after the tour still you know became close friends and we went on like a nice camping trip and to my beach house together and it just sort of blossomed after the tour really because yeah we just hit it off I guess (laughs) on tour (laughs) I love that yeah I'm curious like when you're playing 
at the Hollywood Bowl and you're going around the world and you're seeing all sorts of different types of people learning about you and you've done so much in that world and also an insane amount back at the classical world as well. All these orchestras, all these recording projects, it's, it's really awesome. How does it feel to you going between these worlds, particularly like on stage? The audience for Sarah is pretty different than the audience for Tchaikovsky. Do you feel different on stage? It, it is, is it more freeing on stage for some of these? So I feel like there is nothing that can compare to the feeling that you get when you're performing for arenas of like 20 to 40,000 people. The energy, the you feel like you're like on some fancy drug or something. <laughs> like I don't know what <laughs> drug that is, but like it's so euphoric. It's so incredible that energy that you feel from the audience and that just like is like a volt of energy within you immediately just feeling that excitement and just everything from the audience is is unbelievable and i think that is something unique of course to the popular music world because we don't get to experience that as classical musicians performing at carnegie or you know symphony hall or whatever because it's just not the same environment classical uh, musician patrons don't show up and like get up out of their seats and start dancing and you know they cheer. struggle getting up out of the seats like yeah yeah physically you know, so. <laughs> yeah and there's all these like ma you know mannerisms where how you have to behave at a classical music concert so it's so different like you said and that's one of the things that I have like really um just loved about the popular music world is just this opportunity to feel that way and and like to feel that same way that you know any pop artist like Stevie or Sarah or on last Sunday I performed at the MTV Mu Video Music Awards with Doja Cat or like you know Saturday Night Live with John Mendes I've done all these things and I think when we watch these artists from afar and think oh like their life is so cool uh, you know what must their life be like and oh it seems so fun and whatnot and to be able to like really like live that energy that popular music artists live by collaborating with them is such a gift because we don't we don't get that anywhere else as classical musicians you know so i i have really loved that aspect of it and it it always like makes my heart grow more in love with music because in these um, arena settings or big audience settings, you get to share your art and your love for music with even that many more people that are just so excited to hear it, you know? Um, and so that is cool. like a really amazing aspect of doing collaborating with, with pop music. Um, but then, you know, in, in the classical music world, I think what's different about it is not the excitement because I feel like classical music is my soul at the core. And so it's really important to me to also, you know, keep playing classical and doing my classical music projects. But it's exciting in a different way and definitely more nerve wracking because, you know, like the repertoire tends to be difficult in different ways and um I get just a different kind of 
excitement and nervousness, I guess, when it's ang- like anxiousness when it's classical music. Because you, you with classical, you know, you have to deliver everything perfectly. <laughs> and not that you don't in the pop music world, but it's, it's a lot more involved than uh, maybe some of this other stuff. You know what I kind of like related to? It's like the audience, it's like they almost don't want you to, it's like they don't want. I know exactly what's about to come out of your mouth. You know what I mean? It's like they don't, they like expect you to do it right. And they're just trying to be convinced. Yeah. Where, yeah. <laughs> it's like convince me that this wasn't a waste of my time. Now play yeah. Tchaikovsky. Tchaikovsky. Yeah. <laughs> and the scariest thing I think yeah. is playing for my mm. colleagues when it comes oh to classical God. stuff. That for me yeah. is scarier than performing for, I don't know what, or doing whatever competition. Like, because you know your colleagues and your classically trained, uh, you know, friends and colleagues and whatnot are are there. We're all let's be real. We're sitting there judging the shit out of each other. You know, mm-hmm, like you, mm-hmm. like you said, like you want, like you think you're not, but you are. Because we grew up in such an environment where perfection is everything in classical music. Like you have to be perfect and. Or at least that's what's sort of ingrained in us at, you know, these New England Conservatory Juilliard, you know, these schools. It's like perfection is everything for classical music. And that's why, like, doing orchestra auditions is so scary and so hard because the slightest um, deviation from what they want to hear is going to make or break you. And I think, yeah, that's what makes it, like scarier in some way <laughs> it's kind of like you know if some your colleagues right they could say man that sounded bad and you'd be like all right asshole you do it and then yeah. they can <laughs> and it's just like oh god this is weird it's like we bring that in almost from the sports world to where there's just a winner and a loser and it's like there's we don't really you don't really win art you don't really lose art. Like you're, you're just making it. And, yeah. but also just like with sports, we're always looking at the win loss column as like the great decider. And yet your team camaraderie, the health benefits of doing this, the mental aspects, the ability to improve at something. Like there's all these great stuff going on in both like sports and in music and like the creative fields. And yet wins and loss. Who won that? Who lost that? Yeah. I think it's kind of like the American we're we're looking at, like we're trying to take this European, you know, tradition and we're superimposing it against American exceptionalism competition, uh, pulling oneself up by their bootstraps. And there's just so much baggage that kind of like, uh, kind of comes with that. We were also coupling it with a market that's, that's in, that's decreasing by the year although the supply is increasing. So you've got like this double, you've got this double uh, bottleneck uh, happening in the market. And so th- I think that breeds a lot of more toxic competition. But to to your point, Melody, I think that what's really cool about the pop music audience world is like, you could play whole notes. Like they, they want to clap after you tune. Yeah. <laughs> Have you noticed? Yeah. <laughs> you tune and they're like, what? Yeah. Oh my God, it's so beautiful. It's like what? I haven't even gotten st- literally haven't even gotten started yet. Like, like they're rooting for you. They're yeah, rooting for yeah. you. It's such a unique thing. Exactly right. Yeah. 
That's why I personally gra- gra- gravitate towards it. So um, have you, this is probably a total dead end, but I'm curious, like now that you've like begun into the pop world and, and, and learning other styles and have you explored any extended techniques, um, improvisation, um, uh, jazz theory? Have you, have you done any of that, that yeah. work yet? I actually have, um, growing up, I, um, did the New England Conservatory preparatory school program and since I was three so I was like really fortunate to literally go through every single one of their like orchestras there since I was six and like all their programs I did chorus there I actually took jazz voice uh all through high school and classical voice and so I had like my own little jazz band where I was like singing at NEC prep and of course I was like why wouldn't I incorporate the cello so at the same time, I was like singing and playing a little jazz cello and learning to improvise in high school when I did those classes. Um, and beyond when I was, you know, younger, pre uh, in college and stuff, I then um, had the you know great opportunity to premiere um, Julia Wolf's uh, piece for three cellos um, called Spinning. And that was a like a theater piece almost because we had a whole stage set, costume and um, video design. And that was really cool um, with extended techniques. Speaking of extended techniques, because we got to do um, playing, for instance, like one of a part of the piece, we had this like uh, round circular thing that we put over our thumb and and played with it on the cello or like for part of it, we were laying down and playing on our backs or like singing and playing. And I've done other new music stuff. I, I recently did a recorded Julius Eastman's presence of Joan of Arc for 10 cellos. Mm. And I think doing contemporary music has always been super great and, and a joy of mine because one of my sisters is actually a composer and so, like, growing up, but I was always playing her compositions as well. But yeah, like, d- learning extended techniques is always super cool. And using other instruments, devices to play our instrument is is really cool. And Celia Hatton and I actually recently also did, like, this Paul Wienko piece that had this really tricky section where um, his American haiku, I don't know if you could, Do you know it? Actually, probably, because you're violist, Drew. I you should listen don't. to it if you don't. I'm going to send it to you because really? it's a really Send great it to piece. me. Send it um, to me. It's a great piece. And he has this section where the cello part, you have to play this really kind of complicated rhythm and tap at the same time. And it's all this coordination. And so that was super fun for me to learn and, and work through. I, I love doing new music for these, you know, learning these new techniques. And yeah. I think it's great. And I love hearing that as a composer. So <laughs> there's something really fun about it. And that's how I got into composing. Um, besides just like you playing a couple different styles, different types of instruments. And I was like, I can't practice them all. I'll just, I'll write for them. And then what really got me into the deep end was on bassoon. I was just, I want to play the marriage of Figaro again. Like <laughs> the, the Mozart bassoon concerto. It's like our, yeah. you know, our one option that might get played sometime. And so yeah. I looked to new music. I was like, I want a really hard challenge. 
So then you get into Stockhausen, you get into all these other extended technique things. And there's just something like fun and gratifying. And because sometimes these things will sound bonkers, but the, the craziest thing I started to notice is that these really weird pieces that are like super technically difficult often we're like loved by non-music people it's almost like classical mm-hmm. musicians for the most part would be like uh i don't i don't want to hear this and yet the random people there's always just like four random people at your recital or show that like i don't know how they walked into here i don't know what's <laughs> going on and so i walk out and playing like stockhausen's in freud chef and i'm in a teddy bear outfit and i'm playing like okay guys there's 12 minutes of avant-garde bassoon enjoy and like these people are like yeah because there was theater I was moving around yeah. in a teddy bear costume and like bouncing the belt, like as I was supposed to do in the piece. But that was the fan favorite. They didn't, they didn't care about Weber and you know and something in F major. They were obsessed with it, and I think it was because it was like fun. They they don't they don't know about the notes and the you know slowly combining hexachordal combinatoriality. They're like, wow, that was really fun. That was like a cool experience. And like I remember like looking through. Uh, your resume because we'll get people who will do maybe some classical and some pop but you, you've also got that other that other triangle which is this new music thing and for me i always thought it was fun yeah sure 50 people are in the audience but there was something invigorating because it kind of broke free of this some of the stodgier sides of of classical music because you're in that you're in that loft you're in that weird venue you're not there at Avery Fisher Hall or something. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't resonate with more uh, avant garde music often because I'm, I'm like a harmony. I, I just, I just need harmony. That's just like how I am. <laughs> However, I just want to ask Trevor, do you, do you have footage of you in the teddy bear suit? Oh, I bet I do. <laughs> Dude, can I you find that? Can you find that, please? Like I, I have to. Soul, I think the faking fam needs to see this. It's the head from um, Ted, the movie. The movie had just come out. Oh, yeah. So for that Stockhausen piece, only the bassoon version. I'm sure Viola has it. Clarinet has it. Violin. Like, they all play the same piece. But for the bassoon one, apparently he woke up from a dream. and was like, teddy bears. And so now the bassoon, when you perform that piece in the bassoon, you have to wear a teddy bear outfit um, just because he had a vision. So Ted, the movie came out. I wore that teddy bear outfit. Um, <laughs> I just, I need to see this. I need to see this. I'm I love cu- teddy bears. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm very curious. So another pillar that you spend a lot of time on and a different type of audience, teaching, education. Yeah. You've done a lot. I spent um, a few years involved with the School for Strings. I like taught the little kids music theory, music appreciation, right. yeah. which is such a blast. Yeah. What's it like? Maybe just like tell us a little bit, like what's been drawing you to teaching and how does that fit into your life now? Yeah, so I love teaching. I'm super passionate about my students. And I, so I have my own private studio now. At first, when I moved to New York City, I first started at um, the Harmony program, which is like a nonprofit that provides free music education to low income families. And I was there for two years. And absolutely fell in love with my students. I still keep in touch with them to this day. And I loved that. And then I slowly, you know, started working at different schools in New York. And ultimately, though, I think with performing, I it was easier for me to have a private studio than to work for schools just because it's a little bit less 
uh, sort of strict when you need to reschedule mm-hmm. for concerts and gigs and stuff. So it just sort of felt easier for me to just hold my own private studio. So I have my private students that I see Monday through Friday after school hours till about seven every day. And it's just easier to have a, a private studio because then I can reschedule and move them around when I have concerts and stuff. But teaching, I love. It's super important to me. I did the Suzuki training program at the School for Strings. And I think having that pedagogical background is so incredibly helpful to my teaching. And really, I think, made me just a better teacher overall, because I feel like as performers, we don't necessarily learn to we don't learn to teach just because we're performing and teaching is an art in itself. And, you know, when you have a three-year-old come to their first lesson, what are the things you should teach them? And it just comes down to even just the most basic thing as like, how do you take care of your cello? How do you take it out of the case and put it back in the case? How do we sit? All these um, fundamentals that are super important. And I love teaching little ones. I love starting my little three-year-old. So I yeah, mm. I really enjoy it. I learn every day from my students and it's really a wonderful part of my career. I'm wondering, so do you teach only little kids or do you like also teach more advanced students as well? So at the moment, most of my students are now, because I started them, they're in like 9, 10, 11 age range, a lot of them. And then I have a couple teenagers and a couple adults. So I really have a wide range. Yeah. Um, I haven't taught university level or conservatory level. It's all been pre-college, I think. And then adult students that, you know, just want to learn an instrument. Yeah. I, the reason why I ask, and, and even Daniel is kind of like, uh, <laughs> of kind of thinking along these lines too. I'm sure Trevor is, is there uh, as well. There is a very big difference when you're communicating with children mm-hmm. than when you're communicating with adults, right? Yeah. So when you're communicating with adults, adults and trying to teach them, or even high schoolers with just a more baseline of knowledge, mm-hmm. do you find that y- that you're using more like metaphors and similes to try to maybe like help them understand concepts? Because at least that's what I do when I teach people. And like when a kid doesn't know what your metaphor, your simile is, they're kind of drool. Teaching the fundamentals is so difficult. So I'm really wondering, like, do you have any like tips for teaching like fundamentals? Because that's what I personally struggle with. Yeah, I think for my littlest ones, it's a lot of singing and it's, um, I have encountered students that I ha- that have not started with me that can't actually read music. A lot of teachers like will just write like fingerings above notes and like write what string, you know, and so students don't actually learn to read music. So reading, learning to literally read the music is super important for me. So clapping and counting the rhythm is how every single one of my students first learns to play a piece. If they, I just, that's like step one in the assignments, number one, pizzicato and counting out loud, always out loud, which my students really give me a hard time about. They don't like counting out loud or singing out loud, but I make them do it. And it's, it's really 
it makes them really much better musicians because my three-year-old starting with a metronome already at age three, which I know sounds maybe crazy, or my five-year-old's playing with metronome all of their assignments, like by the time they're like seven, eight, they're like super with them. They're exactly with the metronome. The rhythm is great. They know how to count it. And they, I feel like my job as a teacher is to give them the skills so that they can look at a piece of music and learn it by themselves. If they need me, then I haven't done my job to the best of my ability, I feel like. So teaching them how to count, teaching them what all the markings in the music mean and flashcards. I have all my students do flashcards with me of like, you know, just all the musical terms, theory stuff that like a lot of teachers neglect to teach. Um, you know, what's the order of flats? What's the order of sharps? What are circle of fits? All these sort of fundamentals that if you go to a pre-college program like I did growing up, you know, I had theory class, so I learned them. But I really try to That's implement amazing. all of that into my teaching because I really want my students to be able to read the music by themselves and learn and be able to have the tools to learn a piece by themselves. So singing, clapping rhythm, tapping rhythm, um, all of these things are pizzicato while counting out loud. Then once our left hand is secure, then we add the bow. Dongolo and star. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get them down. <laughs> it's time for some atonal sight singing. A little yeah, Timmy, yeah. You know, get- <laughs> my my transformative moment that revealed to me how difficult it is and how different it is to teach these different age groups is that I would sub in a bunch uh, at school for strings and I teach these high school students you know some middle school I was really comfortable with middle school and so just like all of us we had all sorts of different types of teaching little kids you know I had little composers at the New York Phil who were like awesome after school and then Thursdays, I'd go teach like honors theory three and four to like Juilliard students, very high level stuff. And so I get a call. Hey, can you sub in for me? You know, down school for strings. I'm like, you know, absolutely. This is this is great. I love doing that. He's just like, yeah, like, you know, just like wing it or whatever. Like, you'll, you'll be fine. Like, here's a, we'll, I'll tell you what we're going to cover. And so me cocky, I'm like, I can teach anyone. This is great. And so I show up on Thursday. And what I didn't know about Thursday at School for Strings was that was the little kids. Yeah. <laughs> and so I walk in the room after teaching all these advanced flat th- three chord transforms into yeah. the blah, 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 wolf songs. And then I walk in there. W- wait a minute. Wait a minute. And this kid looks at me. It's a tiny little like four foot, four square foot room. And this little six year old looks at me. First year violin. He goes, ah! like screams and then they start untying my shoe and the, like mm-hmm. it's like those movies where everything's on fire and I just I've told the story before of the pub and I'm just standing there like I just stopped I just like had to like give up and like accept the ridiculousness of the moment like I'm yeah. surprised, you know the room's on fire and all while these kids are like completely destroying me yeah uh, on the other side of that door is all their parents just sitting there yeah. listening to this yeah. chaos but I was determined I'm going to I'm going to work at this I'm going to approve at this. This is my mission. So then the opportunity, the poor teacher before me couldn't take it anymore. And he finally just quit. And so I took over the rest of the year. And like, I spent more time preparing for the, for those little kids than like any college course, any, anything else, <laughs> because I'm going to take this seriously. I can't let, I can't let those kids uh, own me, but you know, for pride, but two, I was like, I, we're going to take this seriously. Like, this is super important 
that they can get this stuff in a fun way. And so next thing you know, we're clapping, we're stomping around the room in tempo. We're listening to Moana and talking about it. Like it's a, yeah. it's a serious, serious thing. And so it's amazing that you like, you can focus in on it because that's so hard and is often neglected by, I think like a lot of musicians of like your skill, talent, and expertise, they kind of leave it behind. Someone else can teach that, but you're going for it. It's super impressive. Thank you. No. And I think uh, you reminded me of a really good point that games in particular are really important for the little ones, like incorporating their learning of the music with a game is always super fun. Like we do in Suzuki group class, like the bow parades, you know, like they, walk around holding their bow correctly to one of the <laughs> Suzuki pieces and they parade around the room and it's like super fun for little kids to do these these activities and also like the importance of group class for little ones because um you know they want to collaborate and feel like they're playing they're having play time while doing their music lesson so that's i think a really also important thing about teaching little ones is the collaboration um, having group class with their classmates and, you know, chamber music, starting them with chamber music early on mm. is really um, helpful and, and good for their musicianship. Thank you, fam. I hope you're listening. Cause like both Trevor and Melody really just dropped some spectacular gems. <laughs> and if you, if, if you're trying to build a teaching studio out there, like, yeah, having opportunities for your students to get together as well, or like, like super important. It, it's fun. And we talk about kids, but I'm thinking about like me as an adult It's like, yeah, like I don't want to like learn music by myself. I would rather be in a group class of guitar players all trying to learn this stuff together. And so I think, you know, this is stuff that can apply to all age groups, but especially for kids, it's like mm-hmm. valuable to take those, those, uh, those advice, that advice, but to heart. Yeah. Thanks. Speaking of teaching, we probably should wrap it up. You have a, you have a lesson to get to pretty soon. Um, yeah, is do. there, is there any like final uh final like gem of wisdom that you'd like to share with our listeners before we let you go? I think like sometimes people will find me on like a uh, social media and just be like, "How can I get into these gigs? Can you help me get these gigs or do this and that?" And I'm like, "I I wish I could help you, but like <laughs> yeah. I I'm just another one of you, you know, like hoping to get those calls too." And I think so yeah, I guess the I think being a freelancer, like really important is to network, of course, get your name out there, put out your work into the world, um, and always like show up prepared and on time and all those things that we spoke about at, at first that are just sort of like the qualities that make you someone that people want to hire. And I think if you present yourself in, you know, try to always be presentable in that way, hopefully more work is going to keep coming in. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Stay woke, y'all. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for coming through, Melody. Thank you for having me. Love you guys. Love you, too. Thanks again. Happy teaching. Till next time.